This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's Sunday, January 27th. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. My fellow Americans, I am very proud to announce today that we have reached a deal. But after the record 35-day partial shutdown, President Trump's announcement was only partially good news. With just a three-week funding extension, the president's fight for his wall is far from over. If we don't get a fair deal from Congress, the government will either shut down on February 15th again, or I will use the powers afforded to me to address this emergency. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi may have won this first round. Can she hold firm on the next? I have been very clear on the wall. We'll talk with acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. Plus, we'll hear from two moderate senators, Maine Republican Susan Collins and West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin on the prospects for a border funding deal. And more fallout from the Mueller investigation as Trump associate Roger Stone is indicted. Charges against him outline incriminating details on how much Trump campaign officials knew about WikiLeaks efforts to undermine Hillary Clinton. We'll have plenty of analysis on all the news and look at the shutdown's economic impact in two key cities. It's all ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin today with the president's acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney. He joins us this morning from Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, welcome to Face the Nation. Margaret, good morning. Thank you for having me. Is the president really prepared to shut down the government again in three weeks? Uh, yeah, I think he actually is. Uh, keep in mind, he's willing to do whatever it takes to secure the border. He does take this very seriously. Um, this is a serious humanitarian and security crisis. And as president of the United States, he takes the security of the nation as his highest priority. He doesn't want to shut the government down. Let's make that very clear. He doesn't want to declare a national emergency. What he wants to do is fix this the way that things are supposed to get fixed uh, with our government, which is through legislation. Uh, one of the reasons he, uh, he agreed to open the government this week was to um, essentially take the Democrats at their word. While their leadership had been telling us they were not interested in negotiating and were sort of taking this uh, do-nothing-and-hope-the-president-gives-up approach, there were many, many Democrats, both rank-and-file and some lower levels of leadership, who would come to us and say, look, we, we happen to agree with you on border security. Some of them Which were Democrats? even very public about it. Well, Dick Durbin publicly said that we'll have some walls in the future. Jim Clyburn, um, my former colleague uh, from South Carolina, actually said that uh, if you could convince him that the experts said we needed uh, a border barrier, he would vote for that. So there's many, many Democrats. Dozens of them have come out over the last couple of weeks to say, you know what, um, this crisis is real. Uh, let's figure out a way to do it properly. Uh, but we can't do it with the government closed. And I think what, the, what you saw this week was the president take them at their word and say, okay, uh, you all have said you want to do this. I'll, uh, let's give it a shot and see if over the next three weeks we can do this the right way and pass legislation to fund the government and secure the border. I think there's some difference of opinion as to what constitutes a wall versus a barrier versus uh, language in the past on fencing. That may be what you're gesturing to sure. there with those and, Democrats. And, uh, but but no, what, you it, make a great point. Well, you make a great point because that's really what a lot of this is. And it, that's silly. It, it, the president has already showed everybody what he wants to build. The exact example. It's not concrete. It's not 2,000 miles long. And we've got Democrats with hair on fire saying they'll never vote for a wall. 
but they voted for money to build that exact wall. In fact, something very similar is being built today. Mm -hmm. They just voted for another 220-odd million dollars for that same, uh, same thing uh, two days ago. So uh, we need to get beyond this fight about what's a wall and what's a fence. But and why does the president think the outcome will the be different in 21 days? I mean, Democrats remained largely unified. It was Republicans in the Senate who broke ranks. Uh, because so many of us, as I mentioned before, so many of them had come to us and say, you know what, um, we think you might be right on this barrier thing, but we, we just cannot negotiate with you during a shutdown. We don't mm -hmm. like the fact that a president might use a shutdown as a negotiating tool. So if you open the government up, we'll negotiate with you on good faith, uh, in good faith on a border barrier. Now's their chance to do that. When will federal employees receive their pay for the work and the back pay? And what about all of those contractors who don't necessarily have job guarantees? Are they going to be made full? Uh, the contractors will depend on the contract, and um, let's talk about the employees for a second because I know a little bit more about that. Um, there's a couple different payroll providers in the federal government, and uh, how an employee gets paid or which payroll provider, provider covers their agency uh, will dictate how long it takes. Uh, some of them could be early this week. Some of them may be later this week, but we hope that by the end of this week, all of the back pay um, will, be, will be made up, and, of course, the next payroll will go out on time. S&P, the ratings agency, says that this costs around $6 billion. It was a drain on the U.S. economy. Looking at the numbers, you actually think this 35-day shutdown was worth it? I mean, what did you accomplish? You don't have money for the wall. You don't have a down payment for the wall. And you say it's an emergency, but now we're waiting three more weeks before the president uh, comes to a, a decision on how he's going to deal with it. Yeah. Is it worth it for the president to secure the nation? Keep in mind, he's not making this up. Um, there really is a humanitarian crisis on the border. There really is uh, a security crisis on the border. I know that some people want to stick their head in the sand and say that's not the case, but we have data that there are actually hundreds of known criminals in the next caravan that is coming up through Mexico today. These are not made-up numbers. So if you're the president of the United States uh, and you know that you have to defend the nation, do you want to shut the government down? No. Do you want to declare a national emergency? No. But you do need and want to, to defend the nation, and he's going to do that. Uh, I disagree with it with the concept that we don't have anything that we didn't have 35 days ago. Now we have a bunch of, of Democrats saying they're willing to work with us. 35 days ago, all we had was Nancy Pelosi saying that under no circumstances would she ever give us any money at all for a wall. That's clearly changed. So I think things are moving in the right direction. The negotiations are far from over. Uh, everybody wants to look at this and said the president lost. We're still in the middle of these negotiations. He just agreed to open the government while that was going on. So uh, the president takes this deadly seriously. It's his number one priority to secure the nation, and he'll do everything he can to do exactly that. The president was tweeting this morning and said that there are 26 million illegal immigrants in the United States right now, not the 11 million that the U.S. government has previously relied upon as the accurate figure. Where did this number come from? And are you saying that government census data has just missed millions and millions of people over the past few years? Keep in mind, I think you and I have used the 11 million before in previous interviews. I, I think that number was was uh, accurate a couple years ago, and it, we know that it's going up because we know, for example, that uh, that 60,000 uh, new illegals are coming across each month for the last three months. Again, a number that is not made up. That is a real number. So we know the number has to be larger than 11 million. I've seen ranges as high, as high I think, of, of 30 or 40 million. I'm not exactly sure where the president got that number this morning, but I think what you see him trying to do is point out how, how silly this debate is. This is not that much money in the greater scheme of things the United States of America. In fact, it's only uh, enough money to build about 240 miles of wall, the very mm -hmm. highest priority that uh, Customs and Border Patrol has told us they need in order to secure the border, most of it, uh, in Texas. So I think he was trying to draw attention to the fact that while the Democrats are sitting here dug in just because they're apparently incapable of working with the president, incapable of giving the president any type of victory at all, um, that we're spending so much money on other things. It's, uh, it's really quite absurd. This should have been resolved a long time ago, and we do hope it gets resolved in the next 21 days. I want to ask you quickly about the president's uh, friend, Roger Stone, who was indicted this week. Have you spoken to the president about this? Uh, no. In fact, I've never met Roger Stone. Keep in mind, all the stuff you see happening with Roger Stone um, doesn't have anything to do with the White House, uh, doesn't have anything to do with the president, and certainly doesn't have anything to do with the staff at the White House, which is what I manage. Right. So uh, I'm entirely out of the loop on that one. So because you manage the staff, can you say that none of the Trump campaign officials named in this indictment currently work at the White House? Again, you're talking to someone who has nothing to do with the campaign, so I honestly do not know how to answer your question.
So you don't know the answer to the question. Um, do yes, do you think it's a problem to lie to Congress? That's one of the things that Roger Stone is charged with. Do I think it's a problem to lie to Congress? Margaret, that's one of the easiest questions you've ever asked me. Yes, I think it's bad to lie to Congress. Because um, the president's tweet uh, seemed to minimize that when he was uh, tweeting about Roger Stone being indicted for lying to Congress. He kind of... No, what I think he was trying to draw attention to, and I've, uh, Republicans have talked about this for many years. I was actually in Congress a couple of years ago when James Clapper flat out lied to Congress and then admitted it, and nothing happened to him. In fact, he's still featured on many networks, maybe even your own, as an expert uh, on dealing with Congress and an expert on, on various things having to do with uh, his area of expertise. Um, that's just absurd. Uh, it's no more right for him to do it than it is for anybody else. I think that's what the president is drawing attention to, is the double standard, that somehow the, the Trump administration is held to a higher standard than the previous administrations. He thinks that's wrong, and uh, I hope that you would agree that it's wrong as well. Every, every administration should be held to the exact same standard. All right. Thank you very much, Vic Mulvaney, for joining us this morning. Thanks, Margaret. We turn now to Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins. Uh, Senator, this 24-page indictment from the special counsel lays out written communication between Roger Stone and senior Trump campaign officials. They seem to be coordinating the timing and the release of information from WikiLeaks, which had those hacked emails obtained by Russia. What does this pattern tell you? Well, I really don't think we can draw conclusions until the special counsel has finished his work. But what this indictment and many others have shown us is the importance of the special counsel being allowed to conclude its investigation unimpeded. Roger Stone and others have dismissed this as these are process charges. But what's in the indictment um, lays out this connection with Russian intelligence giving information to WikiLeaks. Mike Pompeo, when he was CIA director, called WikiLeaks a hostile intelligence service abetted by Russia. Do you think working with WikiLeaks should be considered a crime? Well, you have to know the circumstances of it, but I have great faith in Mr. Mueller's ability to pursue a fair and thorough investigation. He has not yet reached conclusions. But there is a disturbing pattern of lying to Congress that we're seeing in these indictments. And no one should be allowed to do that with impunity. So I'm very pleased that the special counsel is pursuing indictments where he believes individuals have lied to Congress. One of those individuals, uh, Michael Cohen, another former Trump advisor, um, also facing some jail time accused of lying to Congress, and he admitted to it, to lying to your committee. Uh, he is being subpoenaed to testify. What is it that you need to hear from him, and when? Well, we need to hear from him as soon as possible, but we need to ask him all the questions that he answered previously, because we now know that he was not truthful. And in this case, he's been convicted of lying to Congress. So we invited him in to testify, and when a subpoena became necessary, it has been issued. I want to get to the shutdown. Um, there's no immigration deal yet. There's no border wall, no partial funding either, and there's a $6 billion price tag, according to S&P, to the shutdown. What was actually accomplished? Well, I would say absolutely nothing. Shutdowns are never good policy, ever. They are never to be used as a means to achieve any kind of goal, no matter how important that goal may seem to be. They are ineffective. They cause tremendous harm to innocent federal employees and their families who are struggling to pay their bills without paychecks. They hurt those who depend on government services. We've seen the impact on air transportation just this past week on small businesses that have contracts with federal agencies, and ultimately they damaged the economy. And that's why prior to the shutdown at a meeting with the White House, I conveyed to the president my belief that he should not pursue this route. Was the White House and Congress too slow to realize the kind of pain and impact you're talking about? Your colleague, Lisa Murkowski, said, you know, she was kind of stunned by this, that elected members didn't feel the impact until they were delayed going through security at airports. 
Well, it didn't come as a surprise to me back in 2013 when we had a 16-day-long shutdown. I led a bipartisan group that produced a plan to reopen government. I heard from Mainers who worked from federal agencies who told me of their personal hardships, and it was heartbreaking to hear that. So I don't know how any member of the administration or of Congress could think that a shutdown was a worthy pursuit. It never is. Uh, Director Mulvaney said that, uh, Chief of Staff Mulvaney now, uh, said that there's opportunity created here. That's what was won. What, what's the best thing you can get in the next 21 days? The best agreement that we can get is an agreement on border security, but an agreement to fund federal government through the end of the fiscal year, which is September 30th. No more short-term stopgap funding measures. And we cannot have the threat of a government shutdown hanging over our people well, and our economy. I know, and I hope he will join us and expect that he will. And working very hard during this next 21 days to prevent us from being back in the same situation. And this wall, is urgent. A wall ultimately gets funded through this? I think what will happen is that the efforts to continue to build physical barriers, which have gone on in the last two administrations, will continue, but not to the degree that the president has requested. What we should do is ask the experts, the nonpartisan experts at Customs and Border Patrol, what are their biggest problems? It's going to be a combination of physical barriers, technology, more Border Patrol agents, more immigration judges more sensors. It's got to be an all-of-the-above approach. I want to ask you about um, a, a private matter that became public this week with your colleague, uh, Senator Joni Ernst. She revealed uh, she had been the victim of rape in college, and it became public that she was she had suffered abuse at the hands of her now ex-husband. I, I think many people see a lot of resilience in her. Why aren't we hearing more from the party in, in terms of support for her? Well, I reached out to Joni just as soon as I read the devastating news. And I will tell you that colleagues during our lunches came up to her, people on the floor. She is a strong and remarkable woman. And what she has endured has been just horrible. And I know that my heart goes out to her. And I believe that's the case of everybody, Democrat or Republican. Senator. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Margaret. Up next, a central figure in the shutdown debate, West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. He'll be with us. Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading. And so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com slash save, and for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com slash save for 40% off. LegacyBox.com slash save. We're back now with West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. He's a moderate Democrat that has called for compromise during the shutdown. Uh, Compromise, not a word acted upon much these days, Senator. Not used much either. <laughs> no, but, but the president says there's a really good chance that you could see a, a deal before mid-February. What can you actually get done? In well, I, I, I'm very hopeful. I've always been very hopeful reaching out. First of all, we're going to have to bring, I think that Susan, my dear friend Susan Collins, had said that you need to bring in professionals. There's a lack of trust and a lack of belief on both sides. No one believes that basically these figures are correct or this or that's going to happen. Or do we really need all $5.7 billion being spent on a secured, some kind of a secured structure? Uh, on the other hand, you know, we know that a lot of our drugs and, and things that come across that do harm to our country are coming through points of entry. And that's going to be technology sensors, things of that sort. I think they can find a balance if you bring an outside 
special group in, unbiased, un nonpartisan. Well, basically professionals, engineers. But the, the Secretary of Homeland Security has been talking to Congress. Well, the Secretary of Homeland Security, by Democrats, are believing that she's going to basically say what the White House wants her to say. So if you want to get past that trust or belief, then you have to bring in an outside observer who has the professional ability to say, yes, that is needed. Yes, this is going to be. People forget in 2013, we did a major immigration overhaul bill. We, we voted for 40, every Democrat voted for $44 billion of border security. And we still believe border security is necessary, but there's a combination of not just uh, so, structure. So how do you get language that actually Democrats will sign off on because you hear from the administration as as you were mentioning here that time and again Democrats have voted for Barriers and fencing. How we, do you get what the president wants? We have, we voted for that and offered that but it takes more than that as far as you look at the immigration problem You have people that came to the country the wrong way for the right reason They brought children in here that have been here and been productive. They're educated. They're in our military They're in so many facets of, of our economy and doing a great job. Don't they deserve an opportunity a forward uh, path to be a citizen of this great country. If the president or his hard right wing would look at that in a little bit more compassionate way, I think it would break down the problems that we have in the barriers. A path to citizenship in the next three weeks? Well, I, that would be for dreamers and DACA. That was he offered to DACA the three years. We're saying, can't those people deserve like a, a 10 year, it's a long I pathway, mm -hmm. a 10 year pathway? That would really help an awful lot in order moving forward right now. Uh, we're just caught in between and betwixt. The only way you're ever going to stop this, Margaret, from ever happening again, if, if one thing comes out of the three weeks, mm -hmm. of this three-week uh, negotiating, we have a piece of legislation that says we'll never shut down again. And you know how you're going to do that? If we basically ever inflict this pain on ourselves again, mm -hmm. they don't get paid. The day the legislators do not get paid, I'll guarantee you there will not be a shutdown. People in, West, in, in Washington didn't feel the pain. It was the people outside of Washington, all the federal workers, and all the millions of people, depending on those services. The, the president called you wonderful because you were, uh, <laughs> I think, the only Democrat who, who signed yeah. on to a bill that actually went nowhere but included the 5.7 for his border wall. Right. Would you vote for a border wall as he describes it again? Well, I have voted for and I will continue to vote for a structure that's in a whole holistic approach, not just by itself. You know, when you talk about 2,100 miles of border, you're not talking about 2,100 miles of walls, fencing, or anything else. Mm -hmm. You're talking about smart, and they talk about smart technology, more agents that we need, more sensors or points of injury, all of these things. But also there's a pathway forward, the people that are here for the right reason. If you want to get rid of the people that came, created harm, and the wrong reason, you got to be able to keep them out when you, when you send them out. So an immigration reform has to be part of it, just putting money towards a structure is not going to do the job that needs to be done. Which you're trying to be reasonable here, but <laughs> as you've heard, yeah. there are threats overhanging this in the next three weeks. I mean, the, the chief of staff said the president would be willing to shut down the government again. He also said he doesn't really want to, but he could declare a national emergency. If he goes that route of declaring a national emergency, does that ultimately backfire or does that get this done? Here's the thing. We had six. Here's what people seem to fail to understand. We went through the process uh, of going through uh, appropriations. I'm on appropriations committee. Uh, there's 12 appropriations as far as different uh, issues that we work on and the funding. We passed five of them. There were seven left. The one in contention was basically Homeland Security. We met the request of $1.6 billion. Mm -hmm. That changed when it went to the House to $5 billion, came back, so they were going to put basically a 30-day uh, CR on that one and let the other six pass. That would have kept 90% of government open. Mm -hmm. That's what should have been done. And I think I've never seen people held hostage, this many millions of people in the economy of our United States being threatened because we have a disagreement on one issue. You, until recently, served on the Intelligence Community, mm -hmm. uh, Committee. Yes, what I do you do. make of Roger Stone's indictment? Oh, I think that, I mean, we have all the confidence and faith in Bob Mueller. I think he's doing his job. Is there a pattern emerging that you're Well, thinking? I'm very much concerned. I would be very much concerned people involved with that campaign and all the people that have said that they've lied and it's proven they lied to Congress. 
This is not going to be tolerated, cannot be tolerated, and they should be prosecuted to the fullest amount that's allowed. You're on armed services. Mm -hmm. uh, there are 14,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan. The Secretary of State says there's really good progress in talks with the Taliban. Taliban says the U.S. may withdraw troops within 18 months. What do you make of that timeline? Well, the timeline, I'm not sure about the timeline they're talking about, but I think it's time to get out of Afghanistan. I always have. Now, Syria is a complete different story. I don't think we should be leaving Syria mm -hmm. because it's so much at stake and all the players there. But in Afghanistan, I want to make sure we keep Bagram Air Force Base. I think that's a main uh, point of, uh, for us to be in that part of the world. I hope that we stay there mm -hmm. in that part, but not at 14,000 strong. We can do our job and do it well, but we have no more uh, reason to be there than, than I think it is time to leave. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Margaret. We'll be right back in a moment. Next week, Face the Nation is going to be on the road. We'll be broadcasting from Atlanta, Georgia, home of Super Bowl 53. We'll still have news and analysis, but we'll also talk football before CBS Sports takes over to bring you the pregame and the Super Bowl itself. We'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. Our panel is here with us, and we'll be talking to mayors from two cities hit hard by the shutdown. Stay with us. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you, that's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love or visit www.pacificlife.com. Face the Nation, it is time for some political analysis. Ramesh Panuru is a senior editor at National Review and a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Molly Ball is national political correspondent for Time Magazine. David Sanger is a national security correspondent and senior writer for the New York Times. And Shauna Thomas is the Washington bureau chief for Vice News. Good to have you all here. You know, there is such a real impact economically of the shutdown on communities. We're going to talk about that. I don't want to minimize it, but we are going to talk about the political winners and, and losers here because in Washington, ultimately, that is what determines who's got the upper hand in a lot of this. Molly, the, the impression is that Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, won this round. What did she actually win here? Well, she won on the substance. She got what she asked for basically at the beginning, which was to reopen the government uh, and not to have any funding for the wall. Uh, I think she also won on the politics. We saw in public opinion polls that the uh, approval ratings for, for Donald Trump took a turn downwards. The approval ratings for Nancy Pelosi took a turn upwards. And you wouldn't necessarily have known that at the beginning, right? I think the White House... Uh, gambled that, that the Democrats would eventually feel that they had a political interest in not seeming to be stonewalling. But it really went the other way. The Democratic base and the Democratic caucus was very solidly in line uh, with Speaker Pelosi's strategy and uh, Minority Leader Schumer's strategy of uh, not giving an inch, really. And uh, that was uh, that turned out to be a miscalculation by the White House that the Democrats might eventually give in. Uh, and and the result, I think, politically is that the, that the president was damaged and the Democrats now are hoping that he won't want to go through that again, that he did on some level learn something from this. You heard Mick Mulvaney, the chief of staff, though, once again say they see splits among Democrats. You're saying that's not real. I don't think it is. You did. You have seen Democrats, as as uh, as he said, uh, expressing some openness to some border funding, potentially even wall funding. What they haven't said is that they disapproved of the strategy of the Democratic leaders, mm -hmm. that they wouldn't have done it that way, and that they won't be behind that strategy again. And one of our correspondents talked to um, the Virginia 
Congresswoman Jennifer Wexton. We also looked at a couple of town halls. And these are moderates who flipped districts. They're new members of Congress, where we thought we'd start to hear a little bit of, well, I mean, maybe we should come to the table with President Trump. Maybe we should do this. And there were these people who sent these letters to Nancy Pelosi, these moderate Dems, saying, once the president reopens the government, we should have a conversation about the wall. But these people were not talking to us like people who were worried about losing Trump voters. Mm -hmm. Nancy Pelosi kept them in line, and she kept moderates in line. So is the table set, though, for Democrats to now come forward with some kind of proposal? That seems to be what the White House is saying, that there's a moment of opportunity in these next three weeks. I mean, I think there is a moment of opportunity. They have set these conferees. I think it's interesting that the Senate conferees, none of them come from actual border states. <laughs> but um, I, I think we will see, and we'll see how these moderate dims, as well as these, some of these really liberal people, deal with that now that they are actually doing something that resembles governing. Yeah, but as Shauna mentioned, though, the most important thing is that the White House, White House isn't part of this negotiation, that the, the, the thing that the president signed set up this committee between leaders in Congress to work this out. So the hope, I think, among Democrats and Republicans, is that if the White House stays out of this, they can work something out among themselves. Ramesh, uh, you know, you hear the speculation, though, that in the next three weeks, the president may revisit his decision not to declare an emergency or, you know, not to shut the government down again because he's going to get hit so hard by conservative commentators. Is well, he going to pay a cost? I think he is. I think Look, everything he's done in this entire fight has been born of weakness and has begotten more weakness. He went to the shutdown in the first place because he was getting criticized by part of his base, because he was getting criticized from Ann Coulter. So he picked this fight and then he lost it. Is he going to be willing to sit through several weeks of coverage of how he's lost and how he's shown himself right. to be weak? Um, or is he going to want to, is that going to motivate him to shut the government down again? I think that it would be a totally irrational decision that would not achieve his objectives. That doesn't mean he won't do it. David, uh, you know, you hear the president who campaigned on this idea of the forgotten men and women, um, the everyday people, uh, and he's been a champion of them, but they are in many ways, the Senator Manchin said, the people paying the cost, not the elected officials who still get their paycheck. Does this, you know, branding-wise hurt the president? Can he still say that he's a champion for these folks? You know, Margaret, I think it hurts him on two levels. The first is his cabinet appeared to be completely tone deaf when it came to the price that was being paid by ordinary uh, federal workers. And the height of it coming when his Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, uh, suggested that people go out and get payday loans, basically, because the government wasn't paying them. So what have they missed in this? First, the human cost, which I think has been documented pretty remarkably. Secondly, the government cost. We're now paying people, rightly so, we have to pay them, for work that wasn't done while 40, 50 percent of the government was shut. And third, and I think perhaps the most important, was the strategic cost. It really revealed, apart from the president's um, sort of use, uselessness of the exercise, it revealed an inability by this administration to prioritize about what are true security threats. Think of what Mick Mulvaney said to you. He said the president takes seriously, as the, the, takes security as the nation of the nation as his highest priority. Well, on Tuesday, his intelligence chiefs are going to go out and do that annual exercise of laying out the security threats uh, to, to the country, right, in an unclassified briefing. If it's like the past five years, Cyber's number one, terrorism's number two, nuclear proliferation, rise of China, aggressiveness by Vladimir Putin. You get to border issues around page 14 of last year's, and yet he has spoken very little about the others. There's also a point about political prioritization and the failure of the administration to make a strategic plan. I do think that the prominence of the border wall promise in Trump's 2016 2016 campaign means he really does have to show that he's made progress on it. Mm -hmm. He had a chance to do that. Last year, when the Senate Democrats offered him legalization of illegal immigrants who came here as minors in return for some progress on the wall, he threw that chance away because he overreached. He wanted too much. And it's not clear that he's going to get that chance again. I don't know if I'm a congressional Democrat looking at these negotiations coming up. I'm going to say I need to give this president anything now that he's lost. Molly, we are in the 2020 campaign season now. Um, you know, ignore the calendar that says 2019. And 
both sides, Democrats and Republicans, seem to like campaigning around the issue of immigration. Does this, is there an incentive, if you're ultimately cynical here, is there an incentive not to solve it? Uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, this has been a persistent accusation, I think, by both sides, is that it means more to politicians as a sort of live political issue that they can arguably demagogue than as something, that, and use to get their voters out, than as something that they actually want to do. I think that's not the primary thing standing in the way of a broader immigration reform deal. I mean, it's been a decade and more uh, that that a lot of Politicians in both parties have been trying to forge a grand bargain on immigration and have failed to do so. And there's all kinds of obstacles to it uh, that uh, I don't think are just related to this particular political season. I do think, though, that the 2018 midterms were uh, very eye-opening for both sides about the resonance of the immigration issue. You had Republicans wanting to make that election about the economy. The White House overruled them. The president was much more interested in the issue of the caravan and in talking about immigration and talking about the wall and talking about crime. Uh, and uh, the Republicans lost big, uh, except in some of those rural state Senate races. And so I think what both parties took away from that, uh, and the shutdown was the same way. You had a lot of opinion polls showing that people cared much more about kitchen table issues mm -hmm. than about this idea of a dangerous caravan approaching the border. Uh, even if that were true, even if people believed that was a serious problem that needed to be solved, they didn't think it was as important as their salary, their local economy, the things that affect them on an everyday level. And so I think that politicians on both sides are, are seeing that lesson. But the question that I think we're all sort of dancing around is that if the Democrats have made this idea of a wall or still slats or parts of a wall or whatever I'm supposed to be saying now <laughs> in a moral issue and that it is immoral, how do they give in on some parts of that? And can they and can Nancy Pelosi kind of get herself out of that issue? Because I don't think the president of the United States is going to back down on having some parts of the wall funded. And Manchin sort of pointed that direction. Yes. He, and, and so did Susan Collins by saying it's part of something. It's the president himself who needs to call all of it a wall, as he's told his own aides. Well, we, we will take a break and talk about everything else that happened here in Washington in just a moment. Stay with us. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. We're back now with more from our political panel. David, I, I want to start with you here. You know, speaking of national security issues, the broader question of this probe into Russian interference in the 2016 election and the Mueller investigation, I think people often get overwhelmed by the number of uh, headlines that they see about it. How should we understand the indictment of Roger Stone this week? Well, first, there's just the stunning number of people around the campaign some of whom moved into the White House, most of whom didn't, who have uh, been indicted or have pled guilty. We ran a big graphic in the Times that showed basically over 100 contacts between people in the campaign and Russians, which is a big change from what the White House was saying early in its time, which was no one in the campaign dealt with anybody in Russia, period. 
The second big thing that came out of the Roger Stone indictment, though, was in one pregnant paragraph that was buried away in the indictment, written in the very passive tense, in which um, Special Counsel Mueller said that a Trump campaign official asked, contacted someone else in the campaign, didn't say who, to ask Mr. Stone about any additional releases and damaging information that would come out from WikiLeaks. What does that tell you? They didn't name who these campaign officials were. Clearly, Mueller has in mind who they are, or he wouldn't have put them there. And that is the closest they've gotten to describing something that they could charge was a conspiracy. And that, of course, is the charge that the president is most worried about, along with obstruction of justice. What we don't know is did the president himself know about these requests to get information from WikiLeaks? Will we find out who those senior campaign officials are? I know Roger Stone has said Steve Bannon is at least one of them. Yeah. But there are a lot of questions about who was directing this. Or I guess more than second one. I mean, I was also struck by the fact that officials was plural, Trump campaign officials. Bannon has been identified through various, like when you start to connect the dots, you're like, oh, one Steve Bannon. But that is the question everyone else has. Who are the other officials who were having some kind of conversations with Roger Stone to try to get WikiLeaks to do something? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the thing that is clear, and, and Susan Collins kind of said this to you as well, is that here's one problem, and everyone who has talked to the House Intelligence Committee, everyone who has talked to the Senate Intelligence Committee is now thinking maybe lying to Congress is a bad idea since <laughs> Mueller is really using that, and he's used it with Cohen, he's used it with Stone. That That is putting pressure on people, and if you are one of the other many people who's talked to the committees, you're probably going through your testimony and wondering if the FBI is going to knock on my door. Because of those numbers from Ash, it's harder and harder to say which hunt. That's right. So the, the, the bar keeps changing, and the current line is, well, there's no proof of criminal collusion by Trump, by his campaign, and Russia, um, whereas previously it's like, you know, there was no cooperation at all, and, uh, and that line keeps shifting. One question that's, I think, raised by this that's kind of interesting is, why is there no campaign finance charge against Roger Stone? Earlier phases of the scandal have seen speculation that, for example, Donald Trump Jr. might be vulnerable to a legal charge that he solicited politically useful information from Russia. And is this illegal? So the question is, are they holding that in reserve against Stone? Have they decided that that charge doesn't legally stand up because there are First Amendment issues that come into play? But I've got to imagine that uh, Donald Trump Jr.'s lawyers are poring over this pretty carefully. Or is that so monumental that Mueller isn't going to do that until the very end? Well, that's right. Like, it could be charging holding the president's right. son, which I know we're all thinking that, but charging the president's son would be a really huge deal. And I think the other thing that's notable, too, is that uh, Nancy Pelosi tweeted about Roger Stone, but she waited until right after the (laughs) president had signed the deal to reopen the government. That was obviously done on purpose. And she took a very strong line, uh, much stronger than I think she's taken in the past, taking the administration to task for all of this stuff. And I think that's really a sign of things to come as much as the shutdown battle was, right, in this battle between Trump and the newly empowered speaker, the Democratic Mm -hmm. speaker, uh, the shutdown was kind of a distraction from what we were all expecting the Democratic Congress to start doing, which is start using their power, not just for subpoenas, but especially to hold public hearings and really try to uh, put these pieces together for the public and get to the bottom of a lot of the same things that Mueller is investigating. David, I want to make sure we explain what's going on with the Trump administration's decision to pick a side in Venezuela. Yeah. Uh, people often say, if you pick a side, make sure that side wins. Uh, the interim president now, who the U.S. is putting its weight behind, how does this all get resolved? Does Maduro actually step down? Well, you know, we're right at the precipice right now where Maduro's only supporters are China, Russia, and Cuba. Not a great collection. The Europeans have indicated that if Maduro does not call for a true and fair election, because he fixed the last one, within eight days, they too will go with Juan Guaido, who is the interim president as declared by the parliament, the one the United States has backed. I think the interesting news here is there has been bipartisan support behind the president's uh, decision to to, uh, support uh, Juan Guaido. I think the problem here is both history and inconsistency. Our history in Latin America of intervening is a pretty ugly one, and the inconsistency of not applying the same standards to places like Saudi Arabia and Egypt, where the president has embraced Mm -hmm. strongmen, I think may come back to make the United States look pretty hypocritical, not for the first time. 
uh, and potentially some political cost in Florida. Well, that's right. The other interesting question, though, is, you know, the anti-interventionist base of this president in particular among Republicans, how do they react to this role that we're now playing in Venezuela? Elliot Abrams right. had been blackballed by the administration when he was going to be brought on as the number two in the State Department early in the administration. Now he's a special envoy. Interesting to watch. We'll be back in a moment to have a conversation with two mayors, both from cities very much affected by the government shutdown. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. We're joined now by two mayors whose cities were deeply affected by the 35-day government shutdown. Democrat Mayor, uh, Democrat Mayor Michael Passero is from New London, Connecticut, home of the Coast Guard Academy. And Republican Dee Margo is from El Paso, Texas, on the U.S.-Mexico border. Both of us join, both of them join us from their home states. Gentlemen, I'm sorry, I'm tongue-tied here. Um, but I have a question for the both of you. Uh, let's start with Mayor Passero. How has this shutdown impacted your local economy, and do you expect it to snap back now that the shutdown's over? Uh, well, we're not standing at ease uh, with just a three-week uh, reprieve. Um, so uh, we are still going full force with our, our mitigation efforts, and it has, it has hit the community very, very hard uh, the, the, our connection with the Coast Guard is significant. We host the United States Coast Guard Academy, which is training the next generation of officers for, for the uh, Coast Guard, um, with over 1,000 cadets there and, uh, and over 600 employees, both civilian and, and active duty. We also host the United States um, Coast Guard Research and Development. We, we host the, um, the International Ice Patrol and Coast Guard Station New London patrols the waters of Long Island Sound, serving uh, the eastern end of New York, uh, Rhode Island, and uh, New London Harbor. And none of them so, were paid. Uh, no. Um, unfortunately, you look at the situation at the Coast Guard Academy, I wonder how they managed to do it because all the maintenance employees, the secretaries, um, have been furloughed and are not reporting to work. And the enlisted men and the professors are working uh, without, uh, without pay. Uh, the, the active duty in the Coast Guard station are working without pay. These are, are you know, people who are serving the nation and have not been paid for over a month. Uh, Mayor, uh, Mayor Margo, you have uh, a number of border in enforcement agents, DEA agents, et cetera, people who work in security who were unpaid during all of this. What is the impact on your community? We have about 13,000-plus federal and civilian and employees. So, yeah, that was pretty significant with CBP and ICE. Uh, and then last Tuesday at our uh, regular city council meeting, the, the head of our uh, food bank talked about the fact that they were, uh, they were not receiving the food they need for distribution. So it's, it's had an impact on us, for sure. You have in your city, which is on the Mexico border, uh, a barrier. The president shut down the government yes. because he wants one of those in other places in your state of Texas. Is a shutdown worth it? Well, I was listening to your pundits a little bit earlier. I don't think there were any winners in this shutdown, so I don't know how you can talk about winners and losers. Um, we, we are, uh, by way of description, we're the nexus of three states, New Mexico, Chihuahua, Mexico, and Texas two countries, the U.S. and Mexico, and a region of 2.5 million people. We have 23,000 legal pedestrians who cross north every day, and on an annual basis, over 21 million private passenger vehicles. We're the second largest port. 
The fence we have was put in in 2008 as a directive under the President George W. Bush um, uh, when he was president. Uh, it works to stop criminal activity. Uh, my position is that uh, uh, a fence is a part of the, the process, but, but I'm still waiting to hear what Homeland Security wants as opposed to what the political leadership wants. Uh, what does Homeland Security need? Texas is a geography that's totally different from a lot of uh, other states. Is there we a are crisis? The well, I'm not, we're not, El Paso is the safest city in the United States with a population above 500,000. We're not having any of those issues. Now, I've got issues related to the migration coming north every day and the NGO that we have here overseeing that. In fact, as I got, I get numbers every day. This morning, it's 290 are going to be released. Uh, yesterday, we had uh, 250. The day before, 420. I'm concerned about that, uh, but that's, those are those seeking asylum. Uh, Mayor Passero, uh, you described the presence of the Coast Guard in your town, and we should say that's the only branch of the military that remained unpaid during the shutdown. There is a bill uh, proposing that they would continue to be paid in the event of a future shutdown. Um, what, what is your message? How needed is that kind of protection? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, um, the inequity of it, having, having our Coast Guard uh, military personnel unpaid while the other uh, branches of the military are not affected by this is, um, is patently unfair, um, and, and, and it's unpatriotic. But the community has really ste stepped up. We, we, we also have uh, sub-base New London here and, uh, and also General Dynamics Electric Boat. So this is a very strong military community, and uh, the military does take care of their own. So um, Mayor Margot mentions the uh, food bank. We, we are... Being the urban city, we have the United Way has a very strong um, established food bank in the city. But because of the the greater need now, with all the personnel and families that have not been paid, um, the the uh, the community is just uh, providing food and donating food at a, an incredible uh, rate. Um, both replenishing our food bank. They uh, we never thought we'd see the day, but on the grounds of the United States Coast Guard Academy. In Leamy Hall, they had to set up a pop-up food pantry, and the need is enormous. It's, um, it's really disheartening that uh, the Secretary of Commerce uh, cannot seem to recognize that these are, are working families that are living on the edge, and they cannot be left without pay for, for over a month. Thank you both for joining us and telling us about that real-world impact. That's it for us today. Thank you all for watching. Next week, we'll come to you live from the home of Super Bowl 53 in Atlanta, Georgia. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat, as well as the mayors Michael Passero of New London, Connecticut, and Dee Margo of El Paso, Texas. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. And you can... If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. 
I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.